If you're new to us, we are moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We've called the larger study the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've been focusing on the Kingdom of God and digging out that meaning and looking at the heart of our King. So we are now in Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 35 and move to 10.7 this morning. Just a reminder, on Wednesday nights we're going through the book of Hebrews and we're in uh, the Great Hall of Faith on Wednesday nights. And we are at Moses now, looking at how Moses really, through temptation, stood his ground, followed the Lord, refused to be the, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and suffered with the people of God. That's this coming Wednesday night, and we're learning how to walk by faith, so uh, pray you'll join us for that. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 35, would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word? We're reading 9.35 through 10.7. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, 9.36, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. Remember, the original gospel didn't have chapter breaks, so this is kind of how this manifested um, the response to the prayer, if you will. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip, verse 3, and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have a seat. Father, as we have read your holy word, we know your word is alive and powerful. It's sharp. And it is able to go to the depth of our being. And as we see your heart of compassion and we talk about the king of compassion and mission, it is our desire to have heaven's eyes and heaven's heart. And each time we gather in your holy name, we know that your spirit moves among us. And one of the things that's happening through corporate worship and the study of the word of God is we are being conformed into the image of our king into the image of your son. And Paul said, I'm in labor with you in Galatians until Christ is formed in you. Oh Lord, would you teach us to have your heart, your righteous heart, your heart of compassion, your heart of love, to have the discernment of to know when we are to employ these different things. And sometimes it can be confusing to us, Lord. And here we're gonna look at sheep, uh, shepherd, imagery, and we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts, take them, and seal them for thy courts above. We lay this time at your feet. May you work in a mighty way. 
May we have ears to hear what you would say to your people in this hour. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. The king of compassion, the king of mission. Back in verse 35, Jesus was going about, notice, all the cities and the villages. He was teaching, that's the Greek word didasko, that is a different word from proclaiming. You can see he was teaching in their synagogues. Let's just stop there for a second. So the ancient synagogue is somewhat parallel to the modern church. In fact, if you do a little homework, the modern evangelical church service is largely modeled after an ancient synagogue service. In an ancient synagogue service, they would sing some hymns, usually based upon psalms, and they would have a Torah reading from the Torah scroll. They'd literally roll out the scroll, as it were, and someone would read the Torah portion, and then there would be a sermon on that portion of the scripture. That still happens in a lot of uh, modern uh, Jewish synagogues and uh, Messianic synagogues as well. And so Jesus did two things in verse 35. One, he taught in the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue, it would be something like this. It would be a bunch of believers who already believe in the God of the Bible, and they would come, and their expectation would be to hear a Torah portion, a reading from the Old Testament, and commentary on that Torah portion. And that's kind of what I think most of you have come for today. And I'm not really going to preach to you so much as I'm going to teach you. And that's our mode here. We have pastors and teachers to build you up. Now, we also have evangelists that are part of the Ephesians 4 makeup of the church. But a typical Sunday morning, I'm not necessarily doing an evangelistic sermon because I look out at most of you and I know you're believers. And if you're not a, a believer yet, something's still bound to hit you. So that's good news anyway. And so I, my job as a shepherd is to feed the flock. And then we go out to the cities and villages, if you will, and we proclaim the good news. Here's the distinction of the two words. Jesus taught in the synagogue, kind of you could say the early church, didasko, and he proclaimed, now the Greek word is caruso. It's the typical word for preaching in the New King James NIV. It actually says preaching the gospel or the good news. So we get taught the the Bible, if you will, we get taught as sheep, we get built up, we get fed, and then we go out into the cities and villages, as it were, and what do we do? We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the good news of the kingdom. What's the good news of the kingdom? The king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He has lived in, a, in the very history in which we are embedded. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He reigns at the right hand of God the Father today. He has a current ministry to all of us, the ministry of intercession. We come to, not to a throne of judgment, but to a throne of grace that we might receive mercy and help in time of need. Amen? That's his current ministry. The king is also our great high priest, our great shepherd, and he's ministering to us, and we're part of the kingdom. If you're a Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus taught the believers, if you will, those who are already committed to Yahweh, and he proclaimed, verse 35, the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. And in addition to that, as we've already seen, if you've been with us in chapters 8 and 9 and other places, he was healing every kind of disease 
and every kind of sickness. And that's kind of a summary of his ministry. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus saw them with the idea to know them. Seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because here's a metaphor to paint what it looked like to Jesus's eyes and heart. They were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible uses a lot of agrarian imagery because it was set in a first century context and of course before that. So people were used to farms and agriculture and feast days and perhaps owning a farm, working on a farm. There were a lot of shepherds. There were also a good amount of fishermen. So Jesus reached into a metaphor of the time, if you will, a picture of the time that everybody would understand. And sheep without a shepherd is an apt picture of the people. Now, sheep without a shepherd, if I asked you, tell me what you think sheep without a shepherd look like, like what happens to them? You might say, well, they kind of wander. And you know, sheep, we're compared to sheep in the Bible. It's not the only metaphor used for us, thank God. But sheep are not high on the IQ scale, in case you wondered. They will follow one another into open fires. They will follow each other off a cliff. They are not the smartest animals on the planet, and they have no defense. And Jesus saw the people, the multitudes, and remember, in verse 36, that word is a good word because there were thousands of people always around Jesus. In fact, when he was going to try, not to try, he was going to raise the little 12-year-old girl from the dead, on his way, it was so crammed that the woman with the flow of blood touched the edge of his garment, and he said, who touched me? And Peter said, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. It's like sardines in here. But here's what's going on. Jesus always had all these people around him, great multitudes, like being at a rock concert or you know, just a, a very crowded venue all the time. And yet, when he looked at the people, he felt compassion. The, the Greek word is single. Felt compassion is two words in English, but it's one word in Greek. And it's a fun word to say if you're kind of, kind of like to mess around with the Greek language. It's splagonizomai. All right? So there'll be a test. When you're walking out, we're going to ask you to spell splagonizomai. Now, in the ancient world, when they were trying to describe deep feelings like compassion, they, they would say compassion is felt in the bowels. That may be weird to us, but we, we might say something like this, I hate that person's guts. Now, I hope you never say that, especially about people that are sitting right next to you right now. <laughs> but when we use the word guts, that's kind of what we're saying. We're saying in the deepest part of them and coming from the deepest part of me, I hate them. <laughs> now, you might need to repent of that. This is just an illustration but that's the ancient idea of pity or compassion coming from the deepest part of you. And when Jesus looked at the multitudes, he didn't say, you know what, I'm sick of them. Let's get out of here. Or why can't they just get it together? No, he felt compassion on them. He felt deep pity. One scholar puts it this way. 
Jesus' heart went out to them. Now, I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ, this is one of the main reasons I've become a believer, entered into my pain. His compassion drove him to a cross. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he knows how we are. We are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. Prone to get ourselves in trouble. And we need the shepherd. And as I look at our culture today, and you, you may have noticed that after the sheep shepherd imagery, Jesus says in verse 6, if you look ahead, chapter 10, go to the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he saw. A bunch of lost sheep for lack of a shepherd. Now, lost sheep will wander, but they'll do something else. They're more susceptible to a predator. And when Jesus used imagery here, Matthew recording how he felt, he saw them as distressed. Notice the two descriptions here, end of 36, distressed and downcast. Let me paint the two pictures for you. The word distressed literally means to flay. It's the Greek word skolo, or to harass. It means to be distressed, to be vexed or annoyed, to be troubled. It properly signifies, according to one writer, to pluck off the hair. If it's a sheep, they might be saying, you know, I'm pulling my fur out. If it's you, you might be saying, this week I was pulling my hair out. And some of you don't have a whole lot to spare, so you got to be really careful. But we won't look at anybody right now. <laughs> Distressed and downcast. The word downcast could be rendered dejected, to throw to the ground, to cast down to the ground, to throw away. Uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. When we think of the word downcast, think of it literally, think of a casting gaze down. When life is heavy, when maybe we don't have any self-confidence or we're just beat up, our eyes go down. We can't seem to look up at God. We can't seem to make eye contact with others. We're just cast down. And in the sheep uh, shepherd imagery, Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he took us into the world of shepherds and he said one of the saddest sights a shepherd could ever see is a cast sheep, a cast down sheep. What does that mean? If a sheep rolls over on its back, it can't get back up again without the help of someone, hopefully the shepherd or some well-meaning person, and if the sheep stays cast with his legs in the air, gases will build up in its body and it will actually kill them. And imagine if a predator's coming by and there's a cast sheep. The predator's like, you know, putting the napkin inside their shirt because that sheep isn't going anywhere. And if there's no shepherd around, there's no protection. Jesus is saying that the people of his culture have no leadership. They have no one guiding them. They have no shepherds taking the sheep where they ought to go. When Peter made his tragic mistake on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he denied Jesus three times, he went out and he wept bitterly. He was confident in himself, 
but he fell hard that night and Jesus told him he was going to fall. But he rose again as a leader on the seashore in John 21. Jesus, in one of the post-resurrection accounts, calls Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times, remember, three denials, three asks. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And the famous response, then feed my sheep. You're gonna take this baton now and even the pain that you've been through, even the failure that you've experienced is going to be part of your maturing part of you realizing that you can't rely on your flesh. You must rely on the spirit of the, of the living God. Amen? And there's Peter in the first you know, 10 plus chapters of the book of Acts preaching radically in the same city in which he had denied the Lord. Now he's a lion of the faith. He's not perfect, but he's totally reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus looked at the people of his day and he saw stress and dejection and his reaction was compassion. And I think that says maybe everything we need to know about our Lord. Because compassion is a synonym for love. He felt a deep empathy for the people. And he didn't just say, ah, oh, well, they'll figure it out. Or, you know, maybe they'll get it together. No. We're going to see action associated with the king's heart. Spurgeon puts it this way, and Spurgeon always puts things so beautifully. He says, when Jesus saw the crowd in all ill plight, unfed, unfolded, unguarded, what will become of them? Our Lord was stirred with a feeling which agitated his inmost soul. What he saw affected not only his eye, but his heart. He was overcome by sympathy. His whole frame was stirred with emotion which put every faculty into forceful movement. He is even now affected towards our people in the same manner. He is moved with compassion, even when we are not, close quote. And we often say, you know, in the Christian community, oh, that I would have the Lord's eyes and the Lord's heart. But it's one thing to say you see what you need to see. It's quite another thing that your eyes move to compassion and a movement of your heart. See, it doesn't matter if we just observe things but we don't do anything about them, then we're just on the sidelines. Jesus was moved with compassion. And Paul goes into the city of Athens. We're studying this on our Thursday morning Bible study. And he's waiting for some missionary partners. This is Acts 17. And while he's waiting, he observed the city of Athens, the philosophical center of the world back in the day. And he saw all these altars. And he saw the city literally smothered in, in idolatry. They say 3,000 altars lined the agora or the marketplace. And Paul looked and it says he was irritated. One of my favorite verses in the Bible because it gives you biblical Reasons to be irritated, Acts 17, I think it's verse 16. Actually, he was provoked to jealousy for God's honor. He saw all these idols that could do nothing for the people. And Paul didn't go up on Mars Hill and say, I hope you all burn, you pagan pigs. That'd be one approach. <laughs> but that's not a Bible verse. Actually, what he did was he moved his, he was irritated, but he preached 
He ended up on Mars Hill in the Areopagus, kind of an ancient court to talk about philosophies, different philosophies. And he preached the gospel and he started with creation. And he said, look, I, I see you guys are very religious. In fact, I even saw an altar to an unknown God. What you worship in ignorance, I'm now going to proclaim to you. And he started with creation and he moved to the resurrection. And he showed God's heart, even in Athens, Greece. Yes, he was angry, but his anger for God's glory moved him to compassion for the people smothered in idols. That's all they knew. So we can either curse the darkness or decide to make a lighthouse in the gathering storm. Which should we choose? I think the answer is quite obvious. I want to ask another question, and it's this question. Why were the people of Israel in this situation? I want you to turn to Ezekiel 34. You say, Pastor Michael, where is Ezekiel? It's on page 1374 of my Bible. I'm going to give you a minute. Find the Psalms, go right. You're going to pass up Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you'll get to Ezekiel. We'll put, we'll put it up on the screen, but I want you to get used to navigating your Bible because it's important. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Why were they in this situation? I think this is for the time that Ezekiel writes, but it's certainly got prophetic uh, undertones. Ezekiel 34, 1, 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, 34.1, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Three. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. Sound familiar? Jesus' mission. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. In 1 Peter 5, Peter tells the other elders among him that we don't lord it over God's people, but we are examples to the flock. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, 5, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, says the Lord, wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. You might want to write Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. I sought for a man to stand in the gap. I found no one. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. No one to protect, no one to guide. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. Remember, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost and seek them out. He says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, know my voice, and they follow me. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. 
and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. You can't help but think of Psalm 23. He leads me beside quiet waters. I will feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, two chapters later, Jesus will say, and I will give you rest. I will lead them to rest. I won't put further burdens on them, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Skip down to verse 23. Then... I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Some see this as the actual historical David, but he's, he's since dead when this is written. Some see this as the greater David. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me park here just for a second. When Alex preached to us last Sunday, the two blind men call out to Jesus and they say, have mercy on us or compassion. And what do they call him? Son of David. Now David as a boy, was a shepherd. And when the prophet came to anoint the second king of Israel and came to Jesse's house, David wasn't even there. He was like the youngest of eight. And when the prophet was going through the sons of Jesse, he was like, no, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Do you have anybody else, any other kids? Well, there's the youngest, and he's out taking care of the sheep. And they called him in, and the prophet anoints him right there. He anoints my head with oil. Now, it would take a while until David took the throne, but here's the picture I want you to see. David, Jesus comes from the line of David, was a shepherd king, both offices, if you will. He served as a shepherd, and often shepherds were trained to lead ultimately people. David, in the Old Testament, cast a shadow to the Messiah. And ultimately, when Jesus came as the greater David, the son of David, he was the ultimate shepherd king. And what he's saying is, my shepherds, the ones I put in charge of the people, have not done a good job, but there will be a time when my servant David, I the Lord will be their God, my servant David will be prince among them. And then he says, I the Lord have spoken. Now a little wrestling with whether that's speaking of Jesus or perhaps David in a future kingdom, I'll let you Russell with that, uh, back to Matthew chapter nine. Lost sheep. Why do we end up with lost sheep? Joshua was appointed as a successor to Moses. Numbers 27, 17 through 28, or through 18 records that. The reins given to Joshua from Moses, Numbers puts it this way, that the people may not be like sheep without a shepherd. In 1 Kings twenty two seventeen, Micaiah, the prophet, has a vision, and he's predicting the death of Ahab, who was a wicked king, along with his wife. 1 Kings twenty two seventeen. just write it down for your notes. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep, which have no shepherd. No shepherding 
speaks of a lack of leadership. There's no one to guide. And I could talk to you all day long about what's going on in the culture, and I think most of you know what's going on in the culture. But my business is the church. And if shepherds in pulpits, you know that the word pastor, poimeno in Greek, just simply means a shepherd. If you were wondering why we're spending so much time on this, a pastor is a shepherd. And shepherds are called to feed, to protect the sheep from predators, and to guide. Now, we're not the only ones that are doing that job. You, you have your own devotional life, and you ultimately follow the chief shepherd. But for want of shepherds, I look at our generation coming up right now, and I, and I have to ask some questions. What happened to them? Why are so many deconstructing their faith? Why are they saying, oh, I don't want to believe this anymore or that anymore? Because the cultural winds are beating against the house. And because, frankly, many have not been equipped to handle the reality of being a Christian in any generation. Your life is not your own. And when you come to that conclusion, you will save yourself a lot of grief. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You've been bought with a price. And if you decide that the Lord's will will be what your life is about, it will simplify so many things. But our culture is about us. So everything on the moral scale is determined by what we want. Churches, we almost measure like we're going to a restaurant. We're going to score how long it was and, and whatever, where there's some good jokes in the sermon, etc. But that's almost irrelevant, brethren, because what we need is to be fed so we can go out into that world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. And to keep it simple, if you follow your shepherd this week, he will take you everywhere you need to go, whether it's to someone who needs to hear the gospel, whether you're praying about something specifically, you stay close to him and you follow him and he'll take care of everything else. It's really just that simple, but it's also just that hard because we're sheep, <laughs> right? And just when we think that, you know, the sheep's right behind the shepherd, off they go. And we know how we can be. I was even, I was going through Psalm 23 a little bit this week and it even says that his rod and his staff comfort me. Sometimes I need correction as a wayward sheep. When I was growing up, grandma, my grandma, um, used to be, she'd sit in a chair and me and my sister would be watching television and she would throw things at us if we misbehaved. Whatever was there. TV guide, this is back in the day when there was a TV guide. What's the matter with you? And they were bothering one another. You get hit in the back of the head. And she would even use her shoe. And I could swear that her shoe was like a trained boomerang. We'd be acting up and she'd take her shoe off and it hit one of us, come right back to her. She'd put it in the pocket of her robe, blow on it a couple of times. That's the for that, you know. We come from an Italian family in case you were wondering. And we're through one verse. Two verses, I think. All right, so what's the solution? Well, Jesus saw the people. He had sympathy for them. And he said to his disciples, 937 of Matthew, 
Now switching metaphors to like a farm or a, a field with crops. The harvest is plentiful, it's great, but the workers or the servants are few. Now in switching metaphors, Jesus now moves into a field. Maybe we could just say it this way. Let's say you were looking at an apple field and all these trees, the apples were ripe for the picking. And you surveyed, let's say, a huge apple orchard and you knew they were all ready and all you got to do is pick them. But the problem is that there's not enough workers and Jesus is basically saying, I'm the one that's been going around doing this stuff and I need you to do it as well. And this original plea is to the first century apostles because I, I want you to understand that when you read your Bible, not everything is said directly to you. I know that shocks some of you. <gasps> what do you mean it's not directly to me? Well, when Jesus said this, he, there was a, uh, a lot of disciples around, but there were not even really any official apostles. We're about to see that. And they're going to go out into the harvest, but I have some really good news. Over the last 2,000 years, the harvest has had a ton of workers go out into the mission field. Amen? In fact, we've reached much of the known world except for what missionaries call the 1040 window. And about a quarter of the planet claims to be Christian, maybe more. So this prayer or request has largely been fulfilled, but there's still work to do, amen? Because I look at America and I see a lot of lost sheep in America. In fact, I would argue if all the lost sheep in America came home, every church in our city would be filled. It's not like our culture is walking around without the underpinning of Christian values that's been around for a while. It's not ignorance. It's just that the cultural winds are gaining momentum. The harvest is plentiful. It's ripe for the picking. The problem is that there's not enough workers. I, I don't want to tell you that this has all been remedied because even in the modern church, you know, Sometimes we do feel like we're pulling teeth to get people off the bench and into the game. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3 reads this way. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord, I rem remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, you following after me in the wilderness when they left Egypt through a land not sown. Israel, Jeremiah 2, 3, was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Even evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Notice, Israel was the first of his harvest. Salvation is to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You might ask, well, why does, why does Jesus just say, go to the lost sheep of Israel? Does he care, not care about Gentile nations? Yes, he does. It's, it's in the Great Commission. But this is why I, I say we need to know that the original commission in this section was to the apostles. Don't go the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans right now. I want you to first go to the lost sheep of Israel. And to contemporize it for us, I think about the lost sheep in America. I think about the underpinnings of our country, what it was built upon, what we stood for, and what's happening now, and how other nations must look at us now. And the question will become, as we go to the lost sheep in our culture, will we have another great awakening, a third great awakening? We need it so desperately, amen? amen. We need it desperately. And so Jesus is talking about that moment, and he's saying, look, 
Yes, I have compassion, but compassion needs to move to mission. Compassion must find its feet. It must be realized in action. I just want to say that if you are a believer and you don't serve anywhere and you don't do anything, I don't understand that. Now, I will say some of you are involved in the business world and you're, you, you're giving and that's wonderful and I think that's great, but, but there's spiritual gifts you have that need to be engaged to make the body stronger that we can be more effective. Amen. The more of us that go out into the harvest in your sphere of influence, the better the results. So Jesus says, here's what we need to do. We need to pray. 38, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Notice he's, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's also the Lord of the harvest. It's his field. The, the world is his. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest field or laborers. We need more workers. And this is the point in the sermon where the sheep usually prepare to be beat up by the shepherd. All right, here it comes. Do something, get in the game. And you've already gotten some of that, right? But my intention is not to beat the sheep. I don't want you walking out of here going. <laughs> but I want you to hear what Jesus says. He says in John 4, the fields are white unto harvest. He says, you've entered into the labor of others. I am the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. Isaiah sees a, a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And he says famously, here am I, Lord. Remember? Send me. Don't send her or him. Send me. So Jesus says, first of all, he doesn't tell them to go. He says, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that there's more people who catch heaven's heart and vision and go out with that shepherd's heart. And so he summoned the 12. Now here's putting the feet to it, 10-1. They're called disciples. They'll be called apostles in verse two. And he gave them authority, Greek word exousia, power in the New King James. This speaks of both ability and privilege, power and authority. He gave them the power and the delegated authority, if you will, to do what? They had power over unclean spirits to cast them out. This is all that Jesus was himself doing to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Exactly what Jesus was doing with that heart of compassion, now they're gonna do. They're gonna have the power of heaven to cast out demons, to heal people, but it's delegated power. Now, just in case you wondered, this church is a church that believes in the charismatic gifts, but we are careful, and we know that the apostles were a first century group delegated by the Lord with specific delegations for this time in this moment. And I'll let you wrestle with whether or not the church has the same authority today. It would seem that as they went out in this particular mission, they could pray over anybody kind of like Jesus did, cast out demons and heal the sick in this mission. But today, 
there's not the original 12 apostles. And we got to be careful that while we believe in gifts of healing and we believe that the Lord can do whatever he wants through prayer and laying on of hands, we still got to be careful that we don't make a mistake of applying this specific authority to us. Now, we do have delegated authority, but you got to wrestle with the rest of the New Testament to work that out. Because if, if someone says, I'm a modern-day apostle or this or that, and they claim to have these gifts, I want to see them going to hospitals and cleaning out cancer units with children, etc. Amen? Now, I want you to hear me. We believe that when we pray for the sick, God can and does heal. But this specific endowment was for the 12 as they go into these lost cities. Why? Two C's, compassion and confirmation. One, it was driven by the compassion of the Lord. Two, was to confirm that their message was true. So the signs would give them a springboard into preaching the good news of the kingdom. Luke uh, fills in a little bit by saying that Jesus, before he chose the 12, prayed all night before the Father. And from among a larger group of disciples, chose the 12 apostles. So disciples and apostles um, in Matthew, there's a distinction in Luke. There were thousands, perhaps, of professed disciples, but only 12 that he selected to go. And they would go out in pairs. And we'll move quickly now as we wrap up. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's also called Peter. He's the head of every list. Four lists of apostles in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. John doesn't have a list. And Peter's at the head of every list of apostles Judas is the last on every list for obvious reasons, right? Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John. Two sets of brothers, both in the fishing business. James and John, probably first cousins to Jesus. Two sets of brothers. Can you believe it? Sibling rivalry. Brothers in the flesh became brothers in the spirit. <laughs> it can happen, parents. There's hope. Verse 3. Now, they're, they're in groups of four. The second four, always the same as the first four in all the lists, except the order varies a little bit. You have Philip and Bartholomew, verse three. Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer. So Matthew's the only one that gives his own former profession. And Philip, we know, Bartholomew may be Nathaniel from John 1, 45 through 49, you say, well, how does that work? A lot of the ancients had two names at least. Simon, Peter, for example. Matthew is also known as Levi. We've already learned that. And so Bartholomew, look at the name. Bar is son, and Ptolemy or Ptolemy is probably his father. He's the son of Ptolemy. So he could easily be Nathaniel, which most scholars agree, but he's also known as the son of Ptolemy. You know, when someone has the name Johnson, that's probably language moving out in this direction, the son of John. So this is kind of how it worked. People didn't really have last names, but their, their second name was often tied to their location or their family. So you have Thomas and Matthew, and then the last four, James, the son of Alphaeus, he may have been Matthew or Levi's brother. That would make for potentially four sets of brothers in the disciples or apostles. You have Thaddeus. He's also known as Judas, the son of or brother of James. And 
And moving into verse four, you have Simon the Zealot, probably part of a political party that thought paying taxes to a Roman overlord was a no-no. And he gets to work with Matthew the tax collector. Does God have a sense of humor or what? You thought it was difficult to get along with people in the church? Here you are from the zealot, no tax party, working with Matthew, the tax collector. You had to have some conversations around the fire. Like, dude, really? What were you thinking? Now, he was part of a political party, but um, obviously I think his heart changed as he followed Jesus. And then last on the list is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is probably where he's from in the south. He's likely the only non-Galilean apostle. The only apostle not from the area of Galilee. And the epithet, he's the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot will be forever known as the one who betrayed Jesus. Whatever's put behind my name one day, Michael Lance, the one who, please let it never include language like this. Can I get a witness? Because you know, one day, there's gonna be an epitaph or a grave marker or a story told about you. And if it was your name, so-and-so known as what? Hopefully it would be the one who did their best to follow the Lord, full of compassion and truth, you know, etc. How sad that Judas, forever known as the one who betrayed Jesus. And these were the apostles, literally the sent out ones with the idea of like an ambassador, delegated authority. O'Donnell has a funny little section. He says, only one man gets his occupation added. It's not Andrew the fisherman, Thomas the dental hygienist, Philip the used car salesman. It's Matthew the tax collector, verse three. I don't want to make too much of this addition other than the point I'm making. God chose outcasts to reach outcasts. Here we find not Peter the Great or Dr. John von Thunder, of the Tubigen Institute of Theology, or St. Thaddeus of the Holiest Order of Hermits. Rather, we find common men, even uncouth men. And it is this ignoble group of 12 who make the noble message of the gospel to the ignoble world. The church was built upon the faithful testimony, says Jerome, of a bunch of rustics, close quote. <laughs> Gives hope for all of us, doesn't it? Even if you come from Norco. <laughs> we love everybody who comes from Norco. We're looking at a property in Norco. Don't despair. There'll be more on that later. <laughs> anyway, the 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, don't go in the way of the Gentiles, don't go away in the Samaritans, at least not for now, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you pray with me, Father? As we think about sheep and shepherd imagery, thank you that you sent your lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The shepherd became like a sheep to the slaughter and remained silent. He didn't open his mouth. He could have called legions of angels, but no one took your life from you, Lord. You laid it down of your own accord. You had and have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. 
and that you did. And you defeated death in the resurrection and we have a message of hope. We have a shepherd king, a king of compassion, a king of mission, a king who entered into the world on a saving mission, a king who handed the baton to 12 apostles. One fell off the list, but Matthias and the apostle Paul came and so much was done and so much is being done right now. And now the baton is ours. And it's up to us to be faithful. It's required, in fact, of a steward that he be found faithful. And Lord, as we steward the gospel, steward the message of the kingdom, help us, Lord. We feel the pressure of our culture. We feel often distressed and downcast. And we know your heart, and we know you see us. And we know your heart goes out to us. And though we don't understand every twist and turn of this life, we know we have a good shepherd who's pouring mercies new every morning into our hearts. That person that's going through a tough time right now, would you pour out fresh doses of comfort and compassion, Lord? For that person who's not met you or they're a wandering sheep, that they would hear your voice and follow you. Turn from their sin. Turn from false shepherds, poor leadership, false voices, and say, Lord, and you might want to pray right now if it's you, I'm turning to the good shepherd right now. I'm turning around. Forgive me. I believe you entered into this world and died on that terrible cross. I believe you defeated death through the resurrection. I believe you are the king, the good shepherd, and I, I want to follow you all the days of my life. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer and being so patient and compassionate with us. You are, you're the father of compassions. And I pray that the, the, the thought of that compassion will be like living water to our thirsty souls. You'll carry our feet this week to be on mission, not because we have to, but because compassion drives us to see our culture to see fallen soldiers and the like the way that you see, oh God. Give us your heart, give us your eyes this week. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.